Hi, everyone. Um, so this evening is our final look at this book of Ruth, um, our final look at the story of Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. In the last four weeks, we've seen how God has quietly and gently worked to, blink, to, bling, to bring about the flourishing and joy out of the emptiness and tragedy of these hard lives. And we have seen how these characters exemplify the loyal love that is to mark the people of God. In Boaz's redemption of Ruth and in Ruth's loyal love for Naomi, we have seen hints, we have seen foreshadowing of Jesus, of his love for us and his desire to redeem. If you're only breaking into the series tonight, that's okay. I hope it still makes sense but I would encourage you to look back and listen back on the website um, to the other talks. Um, and even better, just open Ruth yourself. It's four short chapters, um, easily read in one sitting. So our section of Ruth for tonight is chapter four, verses 18 to 22. These are the final verses of the book. Um, and then for bigger context, we'll also look um, at Matthew one, because the end of Ruth is a genealogy and Matthew continues that genealogy. The actual narrative, the actual story was complete last week um, when Jim was with us. These last few verses instead take a step back from the story. We see Ruth's whole life on the stage of history. We glimpse the purpose of her little story in a big world. And what I hope for us to do this evening is for us to have the opportunity to do the same, to do the same with our own stories, to take a step back from our own lives for a moment and to reflect on them. Um, my older son, Nathan, is three and a half, um, and in his life, uh, in his mind, his little life is properly epic. Um, so for an example, I'm changing Connor, his brother, in one room, and I'll say, Nathan, can you go grab the socks from the other room? Um, you'd think I'd asked him to defuse a bomb or defeat a dragon, he runs out of the room and starts belting this theme music. Um, I'm not gonna put you through it because he's, he's more musical than I am, um, but he has a wee soundtrack that he lives to, that he belts out when he's feeling happy. He has his own wee theme song and soundtrack. Don't get me wrong, a lot of the time uh, he's shouting and running away and trying to get Connor to eat soil, but when he's in a good mood, he goes around actually listening to a soundtrack in his head. You'll, you'll have seen this in little kids. Everything's an adventure. Everything's exciting. Their little lives are full of wonder. And it's sad that they have to grow up. It's sad, but one day that bubble will burst. Some of us take a bit longer for that to happen than others. Um, it, it took me quite a while. Um, w when I was a kid, I was quite a reader. Um, and I grew up on a strange diet of epic fantasy and missionary biographies. Um, so I saw my little life as the start of an epic narrative. So long story short, I go to uni, I get a job, and then normal life kicks in. Um, there was nothing bad about my life. In fact, it was very good. Um, like Johnny said, I'm married to a wonderful woman, Judith. I had a stable job, I had friends, all was good. But slowly, I could no longer pretend I was extraordinary. I could no longer pretend I was doing something wonderful with my life. A sense of meaninglessness crept into me. Because really, who cared if I'm the friendly guy at work? Really, what does it matter if I come here week after week, 
and try and be involved. So it just crept into me. And in the scheme of things, I know this is all very first world problemy, um, but it was very real to me. And I'm sure a lot of you probably relate. It actually wore, wore, wore me down. Probably only people close to me noticed, but I kind of just started drifting through life. Sense of drive was gone, sense of purpose was gone. It was like that little soundtrack in my head had turned off. It's the closest I've come to depression. And of course, the whole story is more complicated than that, but a big part of it was this nagging, growing sense of purposelessness. This feeling of disappointment at myself, of what I had made my life become, because you have a story in your head and you don't live up to it. So how are we supposed to see our lives? Somewhere in between Nathan's soundtrack and almost depression. When you step back from your life, how are we to see it? A lot of you won't be as sadly dramatic as I am, um, and that's healthy, but you'll know what I mean. We grow uncomfortable even thinking about the big questions because with them, there's a sense of loss a sense of shame. How are we to look at and make sense of our confusing, often incoherent and incomplete little stories? And since God designed us, he knows what's necessary for our flourishing. He knows how we should be seeing our lives. So a key question we must ask is how does God want us to picture our lives? How does he want us to think of our stories? Can we find a way to live with realistic purpose? Purpose that won't just fade. The author of Ruth stepped back and reflected on Ruth's life in a way which revealed her larger purpose, revealed a meaning to her life, a way which honored her life, a purpose with a solid foundation based in reality. So our aim tonight is to come to a place where we can reflect on our own lives in the same way. So that's the plan. Um, so let's read now Ruth chapter 4, verses 18 to 22. We'll also be dipping into Matthew chapter 1. Um, I won't read all of Matthew chapter 1, but you can keep a finger in there. So this is Ruth chapter 4, verse 18. <clears throat> now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. When we read bits of the Bible like this, it's easy for your eyes to glaze over a wee bit. At least in Ruth, it's relatively short, we think. But for someone reading this in Ruth's day, or later in David's day, this was the big reveal. This was the twist. See, verse 17 onwards is the Luke, I am your father. It's the, the red pill or blue pill. It's the never see life again the same moment. Because remember, as Jonathan reminded us a few weeks ago in chapter one, Ruth's story takes place at the time of the judges. It's a dark, dramatic time in Israel. Around the same time as Ruth, there's battles going on in the night with small groups taking on massive armies. There's flawed heroes betrayed and getting their revenge. There's king-killing assassins escaping down toilets. There's foxes being tied together in their hundreds to burn down enemy fields. 
absolutely wild stuff is going on all throughout the nation. And then you read Ruth. Because on one level, this book is a love story concerned with the security and flourishing of two women in a small rural town with an obscure marriage law as a plot device. It's tempting to ask, in the scheme of things, why care about Ruth? The world is falling apart around her. The people of God are in a cycle of destruction. These people are the people that God chose to be a blessing to the world, through whom to bring hope and salvation to everyone. But they're imploding. In that context, what is the point of this farming love story? But then you get to these last verses in Ruth. Until you read verse 17 in the genealogy, you think you're in Little House on the Prairie, but then you realize you're in Lord of the Rings. We had no indication until verse 17 that Ruth is the great-grandmother of the first true king, the greatest king of Israel, David, a man who is arguably one of the most important figures in the Old Testament, a man who would unite the nation and ultimately end the terrible period of evil and chaos the book of Judges records, a man who had a heart after God's own heart and who would become a model, a signpost towards Jesus himself, as we will see later in Matthew chapter 1. This should make us pause, because if you remember anything from Judges, we now see it wasn't the strength of Samson, it wasn't the bravery of Gideon or the faith of Deborah that the Lord ultimately used to bring about peace in Israel. God saw the loyal love of Ruth as she stuck by Naomi, and the integrity of Boaz as he didn't take advantage of a vulnerable woman and instead choose to care for her. And God chose to use their actions, their choices, to bring about his purposes in the world. God never audibly speaks in the book of Ruth. There are no prophets, no blinding lights, no voices from heaven, just ordinary people going about their ordinary, difficult lives trying to honor him. But from this perspective, we see that God is there. When you see the bigger picture, we realize that the whole story is covered in the fingerprints of God, as each of the other uh, people in this series has pointed out. God brings about both the flourishing of Ruth and Naomi and also uses their stories to ultimately save Israel. Time after time in the Bible, God works this way. Little people, ordinary people who are faithful to him, find themselves caught up in a bigger story as they themselves find their, self, find their lives used by God for his purposes. Paul sums up this biblical theme beautifully in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. There is amazing encouragement and a well of strength to be found in this theme, but we also have to be careful not to turn it into fridge magnet theology. It's not enough to pat ourselves on the back and say, don't worry, you matter. That's like Nathan singing an epic soundtrack on his way to get the socks. Sadly, it won't last. We need a solid foundation. We need to see what these verses are built on. Last Sunday, Jim already pointed to this from chapter four of Ruth. He said, a meaningful life 
consists in being part of something bigger than you are. Chris Wright um, is an Old Testament theologian um, and a missions leader, and we're looking forward to hearing from him later in the year. But he, when talking about this, explains it this way. Our little stories find their purpose and meaning when they get caught up and join in God's great story. He says this, it is not that the Bible is some object out there that I need to somehow get into my life to apply the Bible to my life. Rather, I need to think of the question the other way around. How do I apply my life? How do I apply my story into this great story of the Bible? The genealogy reveals that this happened to Ruth. God took her little story and joined it to his greater purposes for the world. And through Ruth, um, Israel was blessed. For us who have already joined our lives to Christ's life, our little stories to his great story, this is both a comfort and a challenge. Too often the individualism and self-centered streak of our culture can sneak its way into our faith here. My Christian life does not just consist of a decision to follow Jesus, and then a period of time until heaven. I'm not just saved from something, I'm saved for something. My salvation is not just about me. Christian, your life is completely bound to the life of Jesus. Your salvation, your purpose, your story finds its meaning in his story, in his life. This means that your life is one to be marked by resolve and action a life with a sense of mission as he catches you up into his mission by his grace and by the power of his spirit. But what if that last point doesn't sound like good news? Our lives can and should find deep purpose and meaning as we join God in what he's doing. But what about those of us who don't feel excited about that idea? You see, it's easy to picture joining in the purposes of God if we feel like we are noble like Boaz or faithful like Ruth. But what if we're not? What if we've not been faithful or acted with integrity? What if a sense of shame, of disqualification, whether actually deserved or imagined, shapes the way that we see our lives? Maybe it's something in particular we've done or failed to do, or maybe it's something that's happened to us, we can't picture the story of our lives having any use to God because we feel disqualified. Something colors the whole story. For many of us, it won't be one thing, one event, but rather a repeated pattern, a slow burn of choices and little sins that we feel disqualifies us from any sense of adventure or purpose or joy in the Christian life. We know that Jesus loves us and forgives us and we know that we're not beyond salvation, but we still struggle to shake the feeling that the best we can hope for is to limp through life until we finally stand before God, and he allows us before him because he has promised to do so. We might not spell it out like that, but I know a lot of us feel like this. I have felt like this. We know we are ultimately saved by Jesus, but until that day, we feel we hold on to our faith by our fingertips. And at any time we think too hard about our lives, we retreat because of shame. We're no Ruth, we're no Boaz. 
For this, we now need to turn to Matthew chapter 1. I'm not going to read the whole thing, um, but I encourage you to have it open if you can. Um, Matthew starts his gospel with a continuation of the same genealogy that we have read in Ruth. He's writing several hundred years later and traces the line all the way to Jesus. Verses 3 to 6 of Matthew 1 trace the same names that we have seen in Ruth, the same people. Genealogies like the one Matthew is writing, it's not just a biological chain. It's a way to communicate history, a way to communicate theology. There's not time or need to go into the details, but this is all very carefully crafted. He divides uh, the genealogy into several groups. There's um, numbers used, sevens and fourteens. Commentators even point out that the whole thing is arranged as an acrostic, um, spelling out the name David, which would have made it easy to memorize. All that to say, Matthew hasn't just thrown names onto a list here. He's been careful. He's been selective. He's trying to communicate meaning. This makes the inclusion of the names Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, really shocking. Women in the first century had a hard time. When Matthew wrote this, it was unnecessary and very unusual to include any woman in a genealogy without good reason. An important function of the genealogies was to prove the purity of someone's bloodline. Herod the Great was a bit obsessed with this. He was half Edomite, half Jew, and because of that, he couldn't trace his lineage in these uh, official genealogies. So he ordered them destroyed. He didn't want anyone to be able to prove a purer pedigree than he had. But then you compare that to what Matthew's done. It's as if he goes out of his way to include Rahab, a Canaanite, Ruth, an Edomite, and Tamar was probably a Canaanite as well. These foreign women didn't need included in the genealogy. They could easily have been swept under the carpet. Genealogies were supposed to, men to, to honor the last guy mentioned, to show his illustrious heritage. But Rahab was a prostitute. Bathsheba was another man's wife whom David stole and then had her husband killed. And Tamar's story, which we'll briefly look at, is probably the most disturbing of them all. These women are not the obvious choices to include in a genealogy meant to honor someone. So what's going on here? What is Matthew doing? So I have to pause here. I have to promise that I did not write this sermon this afternoon. Um, there's a big overlap with what Ian uh, was preaching this morning. Um, I was sitting there scared this morning as he started talking about Judah and Tamar, hoping we didn't disagree about anything. Um, thankfully, we don't. Um, I promise this was written a number of days ago. Um, but um, take it as the Lord wanting us to learn about Tamar and Judah. Ruth's story is explicitly linked to Tamar's. The book of Ruth alludes to Tamar a number of times. In the genealogy we read, the author traces David's ancestry back to a man called Perez. This is a strange choice. Perez isn't a famous guy. He's only mentioned in genealogies and in the one story of his mother, Tamar, in Genesis 38. We don't know much about him other than he was Tamar's son and he had children of his own. 
if the genealogy had just gone back a couple more generations, just a couple more names, it could have begun with Jacob or Isaac or Abraham. Big names, important people, fitting ancestors for King David. But instead, it draws attention to Perez and to Tamar. And then in Ruth 4, verse 12, there's an explicit link. Right after Boaz marries Ruth, the people who are there offer this blessing, comparing the two stories. They say, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And then there are striking similarities in the storylines. Both center around a probable Gentile woman who marries into the people of Israel. Both are widowed, without children, and seem doomed to destitution. Both then take matters into their own hands, dress up and present themselves to older men from the line of Judah. Both have sons and continue the line which ultimately leads to David and then all the way to Jesus. The accounts of Tamar and Ruth are also the only two stories in the Old Testament that deal with the practice of leveret marriage, which Tony explained to us a couple weeks ago. Many commentators would argue that Ruth is written in such a way so to deliberately make you think about Tamar, to deliberately interact with her story. But these similarities make the differences even more shocking. Tamar is no Ruth, and Judah is no Boaz. Ruth goes to Boaz to ask for protection and marriage. Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute to trick her father-in-law Judah to get her pregnant. Boaz praises Ruth for her virtue. He doesn't take advantage of her and instead cares for her at great personal expense and risk. Judah sees the disguised Tamar as an object and he pays for sex. Boaz's integrity results in praise to God. Judah thought Tamar was a cult prostitute, a woman who worshiped a pagan deity by her actions, and he chose to pay for and take part in the idolatry for, for a false god. The story of Judah and Tamar is almost like a dark, twisted version of the story of Ruth and Boaz. I would count it as one of the more disturbing stories in the Bible. So that emphasizes this question to us, why, why is Matthew drawing attention to Tamar? Why are these genealogies pointing to her? If the main point of a genealogy is to honor the person it all leads to, then what's going on? And returning to what we're trying to do this evening, what does it tell us about how God wants us to think about our own stories? There's likely to be more going on here, but we can at least make a, make a couple simple observations. The first, God is not afraid to associate himself with shame, with people who are notorious sinners. The genealogy points out that these people were Jesus's family. It's as if Matthew goes out of his way to find the most notorious people. It's easy to make the Bible, especially the Old Testament, seem like a book full of heroes, um, people to admire and imitate. And there's truth in that. But also there's a lot of awful things, a lot of terrible mistakes and sins, and frankly, a lot of bad people. But the thing is that God meets with them. God associates with them. He even dares to come as Jesus and to call them his family. You see, when Matthew included Tamar in the genealogy, he might not have been making Jesus look good. 
but he was definitely making Tamar look good. Herod wished he had a great Jewish hero as an ancestor, so he would gain honor by the association. But with Jesus, it seems to work the other way around. Being associated with Jesus honors you. The association of Tamar and Judah on this list vindicates them and brings them honor. When shame is brought into the family of Jesus, it doesn't make Jesus look bad. He carries our shame and defeats our sin. Shame is exchanged for honor. You are not disqualified from a life of purpose and meaning and even greatness in the eyes of God, even if a lot of the time, like me, you picture yourself as more of a Judah than a Boaz. God is not repelled by our shame. Nothing we have done, not the spectacular mistakes and not the simmering, repetitive, disappointing weakness, not even the plain evil. God associates himself with sinners. He loves sinners enough to call them family. And in doing so, if we let him, he turns our shame to honor. This is at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And it was so beautiful in the second verse of that last hymn. He removes our dirt, our shame. We take on his lordship, his name, his very life. We are found in him, we are joined to him. Our little stories are caught up and incorporated into his great story. Our shame became his shame and his honor, his glory becomes ours. You are not on any genealogy of Jesus's, but, you are, but if you are his, he counts you as his very family. Just like Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba and Ruth were put down on paper for all the world to see, he is not ashamed of his family. And because he is not ashamed, we no longer have to be. So we're coming to a close. These five little verses at the end of Ruth take a step back from her story and offer a broader perspective. The genealogy does at least two things for Ruth. It honors her through associating her with David and ultimately with Jesus, and it shows how her life was caught up in the purposes of God. Her story was joined to the bigger story of God. And though we are not blood relatives of Jesus, through his redeeming death and his reigning life, he invites us to join our little stories to his great story that leads all the way to a new creation and a world made right. If you know and love Jesus this evening, then this little genealogy invites you to quietly step back, to look at your life, your story. Let Jesus drive away any shame, any feeling of disqualification. He has drawn near. He has associated himself with you. He loves you and you are his. You are in him. You are his family. And once you have allowed him to deal with your shame, ask yourself, how is he inviting us to join our little stories to his great story? How can we live so that our lives are immersed in, driven by, and act out his story? Yes, you are saved from something, but remember that ultimately you are saved for something, for a purpose. Don't just drift through your days like I did. Allowing that, allow that sense of purpose rather to invigorate you and to lend you strength and vitality for the tough task of living for Jesus day to day.
And for anyone here who does not yet know Jesus, this is some of what he is calling you to. A life of purpose with a firm foundation in him. A life defined by his love for you, by his desire to call you his own, his very family. He wants to bring you to a place where you can step back and look at your life with a solid sense of purpose and pride because you are his. Your life is defined by him. God is on a mission to fix all of creation through Jesus, our savior and our king. He invites you, like Ruth, to take your place in his mission, in his story, to join your life, your purpose to his. And that's a foundation for us to build our lives on. Thank you.